Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. Lexum Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with the great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Lived Theology series explores aspects of Christian doctrine through the eyes of men and women who practiced it. Volumes include Abraham Kuyper, John Chrysostom, Samuel Pierce, and forthcoming volumes on Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and more. These books illuminate the vital contributions made by these figures throughout the history of the church. Learn more at lexampress.com. Today's episode is a long conversation with Madison Pierce. We decided to just sort of sit down and start talking. We had a loose outline, a few ideas that we had kind of kept to ourselves and just threw upon each other as we started recording, just kind of to see where the conversation went. So we talked about first jobs, growing up in Texas, things that we're interested in, including movies, music, things like that. We talk about uh, Johannine literature. We talk about the book of Hebrews. We talk about the book of Revelation and yeah, the Trinity, of course. That would not be surprising to anyone who knows our work. So I hope you'll enjoy this long, winding, and fun, uh, relaxed conversation that I had with Madison Pierce. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Madison Pierce, but first, as always, no big deal. Madison Pierce has returned to Church Grammar, and I think we should give a little background to how this happened. You sent me a text message, and you said, hey, how about we do like a Church Grammar forward podcast crossover? And I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. So like, we post Church Grammar on your feed, and then you post, you know, on, on my feed, and you're like, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do stuff like that. So by the end of it, you ended up just saying, I just invited myself on your podcast. So. Well, I think it, we were doing a little, or I was maybe not in like completely serious, and but you were just so excited to like have me back on your podcast that you took it really seriously. I That's don't fair. know. That's fair. Yeah. When you can get a world class New Testament scholar on your podcast, you just take it. You know, you do what you can. <laughs> Whatever. So. All right. So what Madison and I decided to do is we're just we uh, have a bunch of random topics that we both thought of that we have not cleared with each other very much. There was one that we cleared with each other, but otherwise, um, we're just going to talk and see what happens. So this is like. Uh, Christian dark web podcasting like Joe Rogan, where he just shows up and talks and then you see what happens. So uh, what this could turn out to be is really interesting content, uh, or we could get ourselves uh, in a lot of trouble. That's probably one of the two options. Either somebody's going to get fired or people are going to think it's great or both. Yeah. If it doesn't end in tears, then are we even trying? <laughs> are we even trying? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the floor for the first topic that you, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. So one of the things that you and I were just chit chatting about as we were getting stuff together, because I mean, you obviously had some pretty considerable technical difficulties that we had to overcome. Is that what happened? No, it, it, it ended up being my fault. I blamed Brandon, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but one of the things we were kind of chit chatting about is some of the odd jobs we did before we became professors. So why don't you kick us off? What what have you done to bring you to this point? Uh, uh, so yeah, first day of class, I always introduce my students to me, and I tell them a couple of things. One, I flunked out of college the first time I went to college. So after high school, I went to University of Texas in Arlington. And, I've been to uh, UTA. 
I took some classes yeah, there. A, it's a great school. We may have been there at the yeah. same time. Hey. Um, but uh, I mean, see, I'm when I considerably younger than you, but considerably. How old no. are you? Uh, I'm 32. Yeah, I'm 35, so you're considerably younger. Um, I'm definitely your elder. So, um, but so when I was at UTA, uh, I went for a year, lived in the dorms, uh, played online poker all day, and got a .9 GPA. So I, my first year of college, I had less than a 1.0. I failed bowling uh, because they told me I couldn't curve the ball. You know, when you bowl, you curve it. Uh, I, I mean, I me don't, one. but I'm yeah. aware that's a Pro thing. Yeah, really good bowlers do that. And so, um, unfortunately, uh, she told us we weren't allowed to do that because it would damage the lanes, which I don't think is true. But uh, anyway, long story short, she told us we weren't allowed to do that, so I stopped going to class. So uh, that was in the, the middle of my not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, uh, clearly. And uh, so I worked at Chicken Express. You're familiar with Chicken Express, right? Yeah, Chicken E. Yeah. Yeah, so nobody yeah. else knows what Chicken E is. But when we go home uh, for Christmas, I eat at Chicken Express. So, I mean more times than I can even count because I have to get it while I'm there. Okay. So my first job was Chickeny. Rode my bike to Chickeny after school. Uh, I was uh, 14, but told them I was 15 because they wouldn't hire anybody under 15. So this is to get a good look at my life. Uh, I sold, I was a manager of a Lids hat store, if you're familiar with yeah. Lids. Yeah. So I used to have the superpower of being able to tell you what size hat you wore without looking at you, without like uh, you trying it on, but I don't have that anymore. Uh, with your HD video you've got here going on, though, I've got a, I've got a pretty good, I could maybe get a good guess, but oh, and then, I can't uh, wait. let's see, I bust tables at a barbecue restaurant. Um, I sold knives for like a day, like a door to door knife thing that didn't <laughs> last at all. Um, I and then my really my best job was I sold pool tables and I was pretty good at that. And then uh, and then I sold then I sold shoes at Nordstrom um, and I went from men's shoes to kids shoes. So long before I had children, I was really good at like knowing what sizes they wore and what they were supposed to do. And then when we had kids, I totally forgot like all of that information. So that's awesome. So that's a short run of, of the things I did. And then somewhere in there, I became a youth pastor and was youth pastoring. But, you know, that doesn't actually pay. So that's why you sell shoes and other things. So, yeah. So what about you? Yeah. So my first job was at Applebee's. Um, and I worked at the Bees for several years. That was like the Bees. Um, yeah, uh, I tried it. That never caught on for some reason. I, I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, <laughs> you know that just hasn't become the, a thing yet. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, I worked there. Um, started in summers. I think maybe like my sophomore year of high school, and then kept doing it after school and stuff. And then like even when I was in college, I would go back and work and everything. Um, and but while I was in high school, I started working and doing like um, doing video production and all of that. Like I shot video at football games and stuff. And so then when I was in college, another thing I did was work at the government local access channel. And um, basically this channel just ran uh, random slides that were probably made with like word art in yeah, yeah. Microsoft mm -hmm. Word that they were really bad. So I mm -hmm. kind of took it up to the next level in that I used um, like you know, I used Photoshop or something like that and made the graphics like just a hair better. Yeah. Um, but in oh, fun fact, um, on my on the last episode and undoubtedly on this episode, our dog uh, interrupted and Izzy 
it, we bought her because we saw she was one of the slides like she was a puppy <laughs> on the government access channel slides so we've had izzy for like i mean almost 12 years that's amazing um so that's the best thing that that came out of that but yeah i got to help i you know basically was doing like teaching assistant stuff and like helping high school students to learn how to make packet like news packages about you know uh, Santa at the local mall yeah, right, or, right. you know, cop shopping with children and that sort of thing. Um, let's see what else did I do that was interesting. I was an apartment leasing agent, did nice. that for a summer. I made bank, but yeah. squandered it away on food mostly. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Wendy's, Books. McDonald's. Yeah, um, Chick-fil-A for sure. Mm. But, um, oh, actually Payway. I, I probably oh, yeah. spent most of it on payway since we can connect on te uh, like Texas restaurants. There's a few payway up here, but it's, it's pretty uncommon. Um, let's see. And then just, yeah, a lot of really random ministry jobs as well. Um, most of the time, like a sidekick to my husband did a lot of music stuff and whatever. I babysat when I was in seminary. Um, those children are like enormous now and it's super weird, but whatever. Yeah. So not, not quite as interesting as selling knives, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we have two, two tales, two different, totally different tales. I was, uh, I was, I was uh, kind of became a Christian in high school, but really didn't start taking it seriously to my early twenties. And so, um, yeah, I just, I moved out of my house when I was 16. So I was just doing whatever I could get a job to do. So you probably made yeah. more than me in every one of those jobs than I made uh, in any of mine until probably selling shoes. That's when you really. Like I remember, I got a job uh, when I was uh, when I was the manager of a hat store. Uh, I worked my way up from key holder to assistant manager to manager wow. of a store at the Ridgemar Mall in Fort Worth, wow. and uh, it was called Hat World there, but it's Lids Hat World. And uh, I remember them telling me, "You're going to make twenty one thousand nine hundred dollars a year," and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like, what am I going to do with all of this money?" So, yeah, I seriously. Life. When I was working as a leasing agent, I really was making bank. I mean, I was getting like commission on leasing apartments and stuff. And I have I have no idea where that money went. It, it, <laughs> I mean, I was 18 or whatever. Like, I just had no idea what I was doing. But yeah. Yeah, I didn't start. Bad. I didn't start saving money until uh, maybe like two years ago. So <laughs> that's about the time I started being like, oh, we should probably like do something with this money. So yeah. Uh, and all this, all this like massive amount of money coming into church grammar with all these sponsorships and stuff, you know, it's just, it's pretty easy to build a 401k now, but. Yeah. I have no idea what that's like. I mean, we're like the, you know, precious underdogs at forward, no, no formal, you know, sponsorships yeah. or anything. Yeah. But yeah, no I mean, studio. It, I mean, no, we have a studio, but we just don't get to use it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just a shame because. Like you guys are this like ragtag bunch, but like I'm not actually good enough to be on your podcast. So it's just a it's a weird. I think it's Josh's fault probably, but you know, just the way that conversation <laughs> unfolded was really hurtful. But I took I took the opportunity anyway to have you on the podcast because people like you. So well, we'll see. This can kind of be like an audition. Like we can run this past <laughs> them and see if you like pass muster or whatever. But as as far as blaming Josh goes, we actually we have a Slack channel um, for all the forward posts, and we've created a custom little uh, emoji that is Josh's head, and what you what it means is blame Josh. <laughs> so um you're well, you're you're fitting right in i think that this may take take over the top at least well, it'd be a yeah. three or two I, I only uh i only have interacted with josh on twitter but the, the the interactions that we have had have 
generally been around making fun of somebody else or making fun of him. So I feel like I've, I've made my way into that, uh, into that uh, world pretty easily. So excellent. Yeah. One of Josh's mottos is dignity is overrated. And we just, <laughs> we make sure that he really lives by it. <laughs> make sure he believes it and lives by it. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. I've got, uh, uh, I'm going to throw uh, a quick speed round and I've not thought about this. These are literally whatever questions are coming to my mind right now. So okay. uh, I did not, I, so I prepare for a podcast usually, but <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, okay. Uh, speed round number one. Uh, what is the most impactful uh, book you read in your PhD studies as that sort of shaped how you, or maybe leading into shaped how you got into the research and the stuff that you're interested in? Um. In my PhD, it was Atonement and the Logic of the Resurrection by David Moffat. Before my PhD, it probably was either uh, Barclay's Obeying the Truth or maybe uh, Francis's or Francis Watson's um, Paul and Hermeneutics of Faith. And that book still, I, I don't I I don't even, or sorry, I didn't even realize how much it shaped me until I started to, to reread it another time and to look at how pervasive it had been. What about you? Yeah, mine uh, is Paul and the Trinity. So I was, oh, so uh, I was going to do a, uh, and an, I was going to do a PhD comparing the doctrine of revelation between Karl Barth and Carl Henry. That was my initial. So I had like was set up at Aberdeen, was going to do all this stuff and then decided I didn't want to do Aberdeen and we weren't going to move. And then, uh, I read Paul and the Trinity and I was like, I want to do this. And so, uh, that's how I ended up with bird. And then that's how I somehow ended up with revelation, which I still, uh, not sure how, how we got there. Uh, but that was it. Yeah. That wasn't very speedy. Awesome. That was it. Okay. Yeah. Speed round question number two is two. You're seeing you're, you're, we can't follow I'm, up. It's I'm cheating. Well, no, I want to follow up just one thing. Okay. I was going to say that Paul and Trinity, I mean, that played a, a big role in my PhD as well. I mean, Francis um, had supervised Wes, you know, just a few years before or whatever. And um, so Wes and I didn't overlap at all, which is sad because I, I love Wes so much. Um, but, you know, I was finishing up my first year of work and, and Francis said, I can clearly see Trinitarian implications for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Here's a model, go read it. And I think at that point, Paul and the Trinity was like in proof. So he gave me a PDF or whatever and had yeah. me go read it. And I, it was mind blowing. So I love that. It didn't take up all the categories that Wes did, yeah. but it certainly gave me kind of a, a, an exemplar. Yeah. yeah Anyways, think, okay. No, that's okay. We, we're, we're, this is now the slow, the slow round. So um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting because we went two different directions with that too. You went more prosopological with Hebrews, uh, and I went more of a sort of patristic retrieval, uh, redoublement, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, Wes like hints at redoublement just kind of briefly, but then doesn't come back to it a whole lot. Otherwise, it's sort of just like a, a framing in the introduction. Uh, and then what I did was sort of, I ran further that way. So we both went two different directions with Wes's work, not directly in the same way he did, but generally speaking, uh, within that. So it's really interesting. Yeah. But okay. Slow round. Uh, question number two. Um, what is the one thing that you miss about Texas, not being in Texas anymore? Oh, um, probably, I, I mean, generally I can say food. Um, I, mm -hmm. uh, the, like the sentimental answer that's of course true is my family, but if we're talking about just like Texas, um, probably something to do with food. Yeah. yeah. Well, you at least you live in the Chicago land area, so there's good food there. Um, but it's not the same. It's not the same. You don't have a chicken e, for example. So yeah. mine is. Uh, so I'm in Cedarville, Ohio now, which is uh, if you've ever been to Cedarville, Ohio, it's literally the middle of the cornfields. We are an hour from Cincinnati, 
an hour from Columbus and 30 minutes from the big city of Dayton, Ohio, uh, which apparently once was a big city and is now like the same size as the suburb I grew up in in DFW. But uh, yeah, so we have like, you know, a couple of local restaurants and you have to drive 20 or 30 minutes to get to anything that like, I mean, we have a, we do have a Chick-fil-A on campus at Cedarville now open this year. So we don't have to drive 30 minutes to Chick-fil-A anymore, which That's is awesome. a plus. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that and donut shops. I don't know what oh, the donut, yes. I don't know what that world is like up where you are, but it is non-existent here. Yeah, I think that, uh, so I'm, I'm gluten-free now. I actually have a host of dietary whatevers. And um, so donuts are like one of the things that like they cannot do gluten-free mm. well. Um, yeah. You can do like cake donuts, but I mean, really like, it's not a donut. No, it's not. That's the thing. And it's, it's not in Ohio. Everybody thinks that's a donut. And that's what I haven't been able to, to get across. So no, but there's like, I mean, there are amazing donut places in Texarkana, even though it's like a mm -hmm. tiny little town. I mean, it's not that small, but it's, it feels very small. Yeah. It's no, not a it, small town feel. Yeah. Yeah. That's something like that. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my father-in-law, we talked about this before, but my father-in-law was a superintendent at Pleasant Grove, which is like the rich snobby school of the Texarkana area. Um, and, uh, he, um, we would go out there. He was there for like four years. So we would go out there and we would eat at, um, how was that? What's the Mexican food place? Mal, uh, Mali, tamales. Tamales. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love tamales. I wish I could have that tamales and jalapeno tree. <laughs> like just really, they hit the spot every time that we go, we, if we drive back, we always drive through Texarkana coming through and, uh, we'll stop at tamales at some point or another. Awesome. Was that there when you were there? Has that been there for a while? Oh yeah, like, that's yeah. and that's like classic Tex-Mex. And that's yeah. actually one of the only restaurants that's in Arkadelphia where I did my undergrad at Washita. There were now there are more like, but when I was there, it was um, it, first of all, it was dry. Like you had to drive way out of town to get any alcohol, and so a lot of restaurant chains wouldn't come in there. Now. Yeah. That's that's no longer the case, but there was basically like Cracker Barrel and tamales, <laughs> and so it was rough. Well, and tamales had the non-working bar because, like, they do have a bar there, but I'm guessing nobody was using that one at that yeah. time. So, yeah. Okay, I'm out of speed rounds. What's your next uh, or slow rounds? I should say. We'll come back around. I've got more. They're just uh, I haven't thought of them yet. So, what do you? Got? Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I can ask some speed rounds of you too. So, um, let's see. Most interesting thing you've done since COVID started, like COVID related. Uh, COVID related, not get COVID. That's that's so far so good. It's pretty interesting that's statistically, pretty interesting. yeah. Considering my uh, I've been on a college campus in the middle of the cornfields, which means we are this is either a we've called it the bubble, so it's either a bubble uh, or it's a petri dish, you know, it's like one or the other. And so we've had actually uh, our our university has, has done a phenomenal job handling it. Like I we should be like a case study for how to handle that stuff happening on campus because we've got 3500 something like that students that are living on campus in this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere and uh somehow we i think the most cases we've had at once are like 20 and we basically oh have a, and we have a dorm that's set, oh we had like 20 uh high 20s but we have a dorm set up that literally is just like if you get isolated you go there until you're until you test negative so we have like a little yeah. uh it's kind of sad though because they get sent off there and then like people deliver their meals to their door you know like they're not allowed to see anybody and there's windows on the outside of it so sometimes you'll see somebody like a, a guy and sitting outside of his girlfriend's window you know it's <laughs> It's, it's like, it's sweet, but also kind of like, yeah, they're going to break up soon, but this is cute while it lasts, you know. Um, other than that, I've done nothing. Uh, I, I have not picked up any new hobbies. Um, I just started watching Arrested Development, which I'd never seen before. So I, I got that under my belt. That's about the Wait, most exciting thing. Do you I've like done. it? Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Okay, good. Yeah. We can, we've got we can several more points of connection. I basically just live as like live out arrested development with like, you know, various quotes and things. So that's good. Um, but you're talking about like, um, you know, boyfriends standing outside of windows. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I went to a small Christian college. I mean, that was basically like how you had relationships yep. where I was from. So, <laughs> I mean, boys were not allowed in our dorms. Yep. Who knew? Um, but yeah. I did my undergrad at uh, Dallas Baptist, and uh, uh, I was a little older, so I was a 23-year-old freshman when I went, but I lived in the dorms because I, well, one, I was homeless, and two, I, did, I had never lived in dorms. I lived in dorms once before, and that was a terrible experience, so I wanted to actually try to do it normally. And uh, my wife was there. She's four years younger than me. And uh, we had a thing where, like, the opposite sex could come in for a certain amount of time, but, you know, there's oh, a curfew yeah. and all this kind of stuff. The door has to be open. The rule was the, the, door, <laughs> yeah, the door has to be open, and you, and you had to be sitting vertically. So one, so one time I was, we were sitting on the floor watching a movie, like on a beanbag chair and she literally just like had her head on my shoulder. And I remember my RA like just kind of walks in and he's just like, Hey guys. And we're like, uh, Hey, Hey. And he just stood there until she lifted her head off my shoulder and he's like, all right, see you guys later. <laughs> like it's just the most passive aggressive, awkward. Uh, wow. this, this is what it's like to, to be in Christian universities and colleges. It's just, it comes with the territory. So yeah. that leads me to another question. Favorite movie. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, what genre? I got to break it down. Oh, by genre. good. Okay. Um, let's say action. Action. I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's just, it's just the truth. I just can't get around it. But if I'm just like if favorite by favorite, you mean I'll watch it anytime and I love it and I can quote it and I don't care who knows it. It's 300. Like <laughs> okay. That movie, the steroids, the, 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 it's just, it, it taps into the, the deepest recesses of, toxic masculinity that is inside of, of who I am as a person. So uh, 300 is definitely in there, but like legitimately it's probably uh, Departed oh, or yeah. um, one of those kind of movies. Yeah, I love those, but yeah. I'm much more of a, I love comedies particularly. So like Anchorman is, is on my, oh, yeah. is my peak mountaintop comedy. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all I got. 300. All right, I'm gonna press if I thought you. about it more, it'd be better, but. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a hard one because I mean I love movies, so it's really hard for me to like drill down. So like, um, right now you know tis the season, so like it's easy for me to say like favorite action movie Die Hard because we do watch it at Christmas yeah. every year. Um, yeah, a comedy, even it's not a Christmas movie. I mean it is. <laughs> I knew that was gonna get you. Stop doing your tracks. I don't know that I can. Okay, my favorite comedy. Um, so I, I mean, I love Adam Sandler. I know that he's a polarizing figure, but I mean, basically every not, Adam not Sandler movie. I love Big Daddy. Yeah. I, I could definitely quote word for word, but Billy Madison as well. Like I can start it out yeah. and go. But anyways, um, but okay. So I'm gonna press you. What, what about rom com? Do you have a favorite rom com? Oh, oh, rom com. Uh, oh, sorry, say, that's a British thing, flick. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but my favorite chick flick. Yeah. That always comes to mind is Notebook. Like hands oh down, every time. Every time. I hate the Notebook. I hate I, it so much. I hate every Nicholas Sparks whatever. <laughs> Are you? What? It's, I don't know. It's just it, it's just one of those. Uh, you know, everything is wrong about it. Um, you know, the way she treats her fiance is terrible, and just the whole thing. It's dumb. They die together on the bed. I mean, it's all dumb. But for whatever reason, I I don't know what to tell you. It's just. I think it came out when I was a senior in high school. 
And I went and saw it, and I was like, this is stupid. My girlfriend made me go, and then I ended up like being like, this is a beautiful story. Maybe one day this will be my story, you know. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> it didn't work out at all. Although my wife oh. and I, my wife and I, in a roundabout way, have a have a uh, a kind of random uh, in a roundabout way notebook story, kind of. But uh, that's different. That's definitely not a story for the podcast. But uh, um, not for anything inappropriate. Just you know, it's, it's not where we're going today on this episode of Church Grammar. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, rom com, I. Just, Man, I see. This is where I wish I had prepared more because I'd have like really good answers. For... I mean, you said notebook, and you it you came really though. quickly. I know. Oh, like... yeah, that's true. It's not remotely funny or charming no. at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of charming. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. Okay, give me some rom coms that that you like, um, and maybe that'll spark my uh, okay. Here. Oh goodness. Um, I mean, so the most recent one that comes to mind for me. So I love, Oh goodness. I can't even remember. Oh, call me. Maybe I could, w- could watch that movie oh, yeah. 1 million times. I love that movie. Um, crazy rich Asians, I think is really wonderful. Um, sweet home Alabama is like a classic that I really love. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of others. I mean, I love, I think how to lose a guy in 10 days that came out when we were in high school or I was in high school. Um, I love that. So just married. Just Married is a really good one. I love Just Married. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So funny. We're, we're definitely like dating ourselves too because this is like late <laughs> so 90s, old. early 2000 kids. Like this is, it's all it's all nostalgia. It's not really about like if it's good or not. It's all about nostalgia ultimately. So I don't know. I I mean, I rewatched, um, I think I've rewatched all of those within the last like three or four years and they yeah. held up, man. So I think we're well, okay. The Notebook. I... No, I'm just joking. No, the notebook is amazing. Okay, we just like we just need to own that and, and accept it, and then we we'll, we can move on. You can own that, but I'm not. So, I'm looking right now at lists of rom coms. Oh, Hitch, that's one of my favorite. Oh yeah, rom-coms. love Hitch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess that's technically a, a rom com. Um, yeah. Okay, let's. Uh, my turn. Um, this is people are either already tuned out by now or people are riveted. But I don't think yeah. it's going to be in between. I don't think we're really. Gonna be like a, we're we're humanizing ourselves. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. Um, well you said you said the other day that you feel like or you said earlier that you don't feel like people like know all this stuff about me but if you follow me on twitter or on facebook eventually i make fun of myself and say dumb stuff all the time so i mean it's pretty pretty well established that i don't take myself seriously at all probably i knew that i just didn't know what jobs you worked in high school like yeah well um okay talk through uh we we joked about this being a live uh going live at ets even though we're not at ets and it's not actually happening uh, and I actually, to be frank, haven't seen a single session so far, so uh, I've not uh, I've not taken advantage. Yeah, you haven't either. That's good. Um, no. But you did have a paper at ETS that you recorded at some point. I'm guessing that somebody else watched. Uh, so um, talk through your ETS paper. Yeah, the session's on Friday. So um, one of the things that I do in my monograph is um, is look at patterns of discourse in Hebrews, and so say like in the there's if I if if you grant that there's three sections in Hebrews, you have father, son, spirit, father, son, spirit. And then in the third section of Hebrews, it's like all bets are off. Like what in the world is going on with divine speech and several other themes. I mean, the priesthood of Christ is more muted, blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot of changes that take place. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to look at is why. And um, what I see is that there's a lot more ambiguity and so that was kind of the starting point for me is I think, okay, there's a lot of references to theos that are kind of vague that could 
go either way. Same with Curios, for example. Um, and so I wanted to explore whether there was a possibility that the author of Hebrews is intentionally kind of blurring the voices of the divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and so I, you know, I pitched it to uh, Fred Sanders and said, this could be the craziest idea I've ever, you know, ever had, but you know, if I'm going to write something else about prosopological exegesis in Hebrews, like that's the thing that I'd like to explore and get some feedback on. And he said, sure. And so basically what I do is try to look at three ways that we might see kind of divine unity in the text um, and say that one of those is um, shared designations. So the application of, you know, kurios, theos, um, other, you know, kind of, uh, uh, action, or sorry, that's the second category. So shared designations, kurios, theos, et cetera. And so applying quotations to the son, for example, suddenly he's God or Lord, um, not suddenly really, but obviously yeah, in the right. discourse. Um, second one would be like shared actions. And so by saying the son is the agent or addressee or whatever of this quotation, like suddenly he's doing actions that are typically attributed to God. So the classic example for me is like in uh, Hebrews 1, the quotation from Psalm 102, um, you're from the beginning of God, O God, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Um, and so it actually, that that is um, very clear agency of the sun creating the heavens and the earth um, in a very active way. And so those kind of, those are the first two categories. And then ambiguity um, is kind of the third where uh, we have these places where you really um, don't know for sure which person is acting, but because of the shared titles, because of the shared designations, um, there's some flexibility there. And it's possible, I think, in a couple of different places. I mean, Richard Bauckham has an essay in our Muted Voices of the New Testament, where he plays up some of this with Kurios and James, for example. Um, so yeah, I, I, just exploring some of that and seeing if there is a way of looking for uh, unity of the divine persons in the text in a more robust way. So you know, and certainly drawing on the kind of methods of, of Wes, trying to find clues or something like that. So. Yeah. And so what were some, maybe three big takeaways that you had from it? Um, that like, I think was it true? Cause you were like, yeah, I think I'm trying to figure this out. Is it true though? Did, did, it, did it conclude the way you wanted it to? Yeah. So those first two categories, the, um, you know, that the author or that authors in the New Testament are applying designations and that to some extent that that I mean, or I think to a great extent that implies unity. Um, I mean, this is kind of drawing on some some of the stuff that that Bauckham does, you know, the um, divine identity. Mm -hmm. um, second, you know, shared actions. I think that was a, a new earth thing. I think people have have highlighted that. And obviously there are conversations about inseparable op operations that come in here and all of that. But it's about it's not about, um, oh, surprise, the sun creates. It's here in this particular context. It's appropriate for a biblical author to highlight the work of the sun and creation rather than the father, even mm -hmm. though classically we would think of the father as the primary one who's creating. So I'm doing a lot of hand gestures that y'all will not receive the benefit <laughs> of. Um, and then that third one, the ambiguity, I mean, I, 
whether something is intentional ambiguity is almost impossible to determine. But mm -hmm. basically what I do is show um, a few different places in Hebrews where kurios or theos occurs and then show how it could be the father or the son, like based on a kind of literary reading of what Hebrews has done, drawing on some of the themes and the way that he's developed his characters to that point saying, you know, beats me. I don't know if this is the father. Like, I can't, I cannot make a judgment if this is the father or the son. And I think that's a meaningful uh, thing. So yeah, I think I found what I was looking for, whether, you know, I've made a strong enough case to convince the rest of the world. I don't know, but I at least said, here's some reasonable kind of gestures in that direction. I don't think I like cracked the case of Trinity in the new Testament or anything, but I hope it's a good contribution. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, you were when you were asking me about inseparable operations a little while back. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I've found. It's just hard to find work on it. I mean, I pointed you to Adonis Vidu's stuff, uh, and other than that, it's been really hard to yeah. find like um, anything outside of the fathers themselves of people retrieving it well or applying it well in any meaningful way. And it kind of made me feel bad that I I wish I'd done it more in my dissertation probably than I did because I mean I did. I guess it's in there, but. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I mean, you, you asked me like, Hey, where can I find some stuff? And I was like, uh, here's one guy <laughs> that's yeah. all I could find. So, yeah. And I didn't find much more. I mean, um, I, you know, I tried to, um, to appeal to really kind of, um, uh, introductory conversations about it just because, um, you never, and that, that is kind of a, a thing that I, that I tend to do is to obviously dig in on or drill down when I, when I can, but sometimes appealing to introductory works like, um, Fred Sanders trying God or now Scott Swain's, you know, uh, introdu introduction to the Trinity. Yeah. Um, I, I take those to be, um, really basic, accounts that are less controversial because they are introductory. And so especially in a venue like ETS, where um, I uh, imagine there could be some trolling, I uh, no, not at ETS. Went, I went a little bit safe. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it's uh, at least you don't have to be there, though. So I mean, really, what do you have like a live panel? Is that what it's going to be or? Yeah, we've got a session on like a Q&A on Friday. And so yeah. I need I do need to to uh, watch some papers for my uh, other, you know, the other presenters in the session and stuff. But I mean, I, I've been hearing some funny stories about the Q and A, like being it's in chat and stuff. Oh, and yeah. so, I mean, uh, people always behave on the internet, but you know, that's true. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think about that actually. If, there, if there's chat feature, it's probably worse. <laughs> so I, I found that with students yeah. as well. Like I had to, there was a little early on in the semester, being like, "Hey guys, like you, you just can't talk to each other in the chat while I'm lecturing. Like, this is just basic. Like you would not do this if we were in class. Don't do it. You know, just because it's on Zoom." So, all right, what else you got? Yeah. What else you got? Yeah. So um, I'd love to hear you talk more about Revelation. So uh, we've heard you talk about the Trinity quite a bit, but you know, what are what are or who are some of the influential figures for you and in how you interpret Revelation? If you want to give us your kind of interpretive schema for the text by all means i don't know if you feel comfortable like pinning yourself down in that way yeah on this uh, podcast but. i don't feel uh I'm, i try to be shifty in general theologically so it's a i try to keep try to keep that um oh yeah yeah you know it's funny because whenever i came and interviewed at cedarville um because my dissertation is a trinitarian reading of revelation basically i got so many like eschatological questions and there were several of them where i was like i don't know like i just haven't that's just not been the focus of my study. And so I don't know. Um, and I kept trying to go back to like, hey, Doctrine of the Trinity is actually kind of what I'm doing here. So maybe like, could we talk, we can talk about that more <laughs> if you want. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, uh, 
generally speaking, I, I taught uh, Revelation actually um, the last two days of my New Testament lit class. We finished the semester in Revelation. And, you know, I take that tack that uh, to be an expert of something, you should be able to explain it to anybody. And I think that's generally true, you know, within reason. And I found it, even though I've done, what, five years of PhD study on Revelation, I found it that it still was difficult for me to teach in many ways because you've got so many different views, you've got so many different options. I mean, uh, so some of the kind of defaults that I'll come back to um, is that I think there is a level of double fulfillment at times. So, um, and patterning, patterning and typology that's happening there. Um, so for example, when John is pointing out, uh, you know, the beast, or, you know, if you want to tie that to the antichrist or something like that, you know, he, I think he is using Rome and Caesar as a foil, but is also pointing towards something saying, this is what, this is what that looks like. This is kind of a, a figural or a, a patterning of what that looks like. Um, and so I, I lean a little bit, uh, I lean pretty heavily actually more toward, um, a premillen a version of a premillennial view on the end. Um, I've tried to be amillennial about that about 16,000 different times, especially when I was a reform bro. Um, and, uh, with the TM trademark, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I tend to, when I was talking to the students, I said, you know, I tend to, to see at least some sort of a break around 18 or 19, where it talks about the, the great fall of Babylon and sort of this seems to be initiating some sort of sequence, whatever that is. Now, um, we can debate what that is. I and mean, when we talk through, you know, if you take numbers figuratively, then it's a thousand years figural or not, you know, and whether or not it is, I said, I think it's still some sort of future event, something like that. So, um, but I, I, I told them, I said, you know, here's preterist, here's historicist, here's futurist, here's idealist. And I was like, they're all right in their own way. Like there, there's truth in all of these. And so uh, one thing I always tell my students is that if you've heard an extreme of something, I'm probably somewhere saying that there's good things there, but also other things to say. Um, and so this isn't answering your question directly because Trinitarian reading is the only way to actually read Revelation. There is no other uh, important things, I would say. Um, this will help me sell books one day. But uh but I think there is a, I think that there is a lot of, uh, yeah, typology and figural language, not just your apocalyptic language like numbers and symbols or whatever, um, but that uh, John is using certain figures and examples to point toward other things. And ultimately what he's doing is saying, here is what true and false worship is, and here is God's reality versus what the world is sort of portraying. So you have all these parodies of, uh, of Christ mm -hmm. and of God and stuff all throughout. Um, you know, it talks about the second beast in Revelation 13 having uh, looking like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. You know, I'm like, that's that's like uh, I mean, he, he is very likely or very possibly talking about Domitian or Nero or somebody like that. But this is also what we see in Antichrist type figures. And the Bible seems to have uh, a category for more than one Antichrist, you know, first John and, and other things. So yeah. I always tell them if there is if there is a future final Antichrist figure that in some way inaugurates sort of the final events of history, whatever we have, we want to say that, that he's going to look like this. But the hard part is, is that whenever we start trying to figure out who that person is, um, our categories are always like, it's always like, it's the prime minister of France. And it's like, yeah, but that guy doesn't fit like half of the basic categories that this cat character is supposed to be. You know what I mean? Uh, sitting in God's temple and, and receiving worship. Um, uh, you know, I, I actually make a pretty strong case that I think the antichrist, we're going to think the antichrist is a Christian. And it's going to oh, be yeah. a, a Judas situation. Um, and so I always say Judas is kind of the type. Like, that's what we're looking for. And yeah. so that's where, you know, we, we tend to think it's like some pagan or something. I'm like, no, actually, I think it's somebody that we're going to, like, it's going to surprise us, you know. 
So, or at least somebody, I, I mean, I, I would, I would think that it would have to be a divisive figure, but what, yeah, I think what you see with the antichrist or with the beast, at least so with the beast, yeah. um, is that he is leading a considerable number of, of Christians astray. Right. The problem is that we all think well, it couldn't happen to me. And so we assume yeah. that it's somebody that's leading other Christians astray. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, we just, I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. that's the difficult thing, but he will be appealing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the sort of the about face. Some will see it and have ears to hear and be like, that's not right. But a lot of people yeah. won't, you know. Um, and, you know, so I think and that's an example, I would say, where sort of how I read Revelation is. I think that there's much more typology and figural language than we typically view it as. But what I don't also don't do is sort of punt all the way to the sort of this is all allegory. This is all, like, a, like right. a kind of pure amillennial view. I'm just not not all the way there. Um and I'm even influenced by, you know, Irenaeus and others on some of this mm -hmm. as well as mm -hmm. a patristics guy. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a, an answer, non-answer. Um, I don't I don't like I mean, I talk to the millennial views in class when I teach when I teach on it, but I find them to be uh, highly wanting at the end of the day in terms of how to read all of the book. And so, oh, yeah, so I tend to I tend to uh, I tend to try to find some sort of balance between this is describing reality and this is also pointing towards something in the end. And I think there is mm -hmm. a balance there that I think. I had a student ask uh, on Tuesday, well, how am I supposed to read this chronologically? Is it cycles? Is it like, what is it? And I said, you know, I don't think that John actually is concerned, is that with, uh, is concerned about that as you are. Like, I don't think he's trying to set a chronology per se. Um, I think this is like a lot of ancient apocalypse is really a picture of heaven and earth, true and false worship, God's justice and Satan's injustice. Uh, and that there is some sort of final fulfillment, obviously. I mean, clearly we all agree that Revelation 21 and 22 is a future event, unless you're a preterist. Um, so it's all pointing towards something. The question is how much of it is now and how much of it is later. So right. that's, an, that's a good non-answer for you. No, it works. I mean, that, that's helpful. It's, um, and yeah, I try to teach my students. So I have like six or seven days. I can't remember how many it is on Revelation. So I teach like, a, it's a Johannine literature class. And so we go through John and then the, or the gospel and then the letters and the apocalypse. And, um, and so you know, only one of those days and only for a chunk of the time do we talk about the end. And mm -hmm. obviously, you know, depending on how you read Revelation, more or less of that, you know, the earlier chapters are right. the end times or whatever. But um, yeah, try to build plausibility for um, some historical references for, to the first century. Obviously, that's super is easy in like the, you know, letters to seven churches. I yeah. think, as you say, like the imagery of Nero or, or Domitian um, in some of the earlier chapters, but that doesn't mean that those can't point forward or be right. a sort of, um, you know, universal, uh, like, you know, either type or kind of pattern or something like that. So yeah, I think that's helpful. Um, there was another thing I was going to say about Revelation, but, um, oh, but the, the one thing that I really try to stress with them is that um, if, if you're so fascinated with reading this in light of eschatology that you're not taking seriously, as you say, the kind of call to proper worship mm -hmm. um, and the critique of, of what's going on in their current culture, then you're really missing it. I mean, you're yeah. certainly missing the bill in terms of reading Revelation as scripture, but um, you're you're missing the intent of Revelation as well. So yeah, and that's and there's there's a lot in there. I was telling them like we were going through the like the throne room scenes, and I'm like, I don't know why <laughs> they have six eyes and four wings and stuff. Like, there's probably an answer out there. I don't know what it is. I said if you read a hundred commentaries, you're gonna get eighty answers. You know, like that. I said, but 
what is being more clearly portrayed is the fact that all of creation is worshiping God rightly, that the lamb is on the throne, that these promises of the prophets are coming true, that this is Isaiah 6 on steroids, you know, this is Ezekiel 1, you know, on steroids. Um, and that's where I'll make some Trinitarian arguments, but um, that there is a, a lot more going on here than that. Like we get obsessed with that. And John even will say things like, uh, it's like a sea of glass, or it's like a rainbow, or it's like an ox. You know, like he is even telling you, I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. I'm just trying to describe it to you the best that I can. So I try to tell them like, I'm not sure John is fully comprehending everything that he's seeing because it's so uh, vivid and, and unreal and, and realistic. And, and in fact, I think, uh, you know, if I want to psychoanalyze John a little bit, you know, maybe part of the reason, I mean, I think he really had these visions. Uh, and I think, you know, apocalyptic literature helps explain the things that he's trying to explain. Like he could have done it a different way if he wanted to, I guess. Um, but he is using apocalyptic language and he does see himself as fulfilling the prophets. And I mean, that's clearly why he's quoting or alluding to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, mm -hmm. like all the time. Oh, and yeah. so I try to tell them like what John is trying to show you actually is this is what God's reality looks like. This is God's justice. This is uh, what worship is supposed to look like. And then this is the parody that the world gives you the idolatry, mm -hmm. the, um, and that's like, I think that's his big picture. And actually I think most apocalypses are that way. I mean, Enoch and Ezra and others are doing basically the same thing. Uh, just, they don't have a, a, a you know, a Christ figure, but they do have, uh, this idea that, yeah, we are suffering. Yeah. We're persecuted. Yeah. This world kind of sucks, but like, this is what God is doing, you know? And so I just try to take their eyes off that a little bit and say, if you can see that, then you can see that, um, John can be speaking to a first century audience. I mean, he tells them in Revelation 13, he says, uh, if you have ears to hear, you will know the person that I'm talking about. And so it's like, so I would tell them, like, is that just for them? Or is that for us too? Like, at what point did the people he wrote to, they're like, oh, this isn't for us anymore, guys. We can we can check out on this, you know? Um, but I tell them too that, you know, the, biblically speaking, the end times are basically everything that happens after Jesus resurrects. Or at least yeah. after the spirits poured out, right? So yeah. we are we we have been in the end times since Acts chapter two, and so um, you know you have the critique from some critical scholars or non-Christian scholars who will say, well, Paul was just wrong. He <laughs> thought Jesus was coming back and he was wrong. And I say, no, actually, I think Paul just recognizes that Jesus could come back at any time because all the expectations, all the promises have come true that would inaugurate the fact that he could come back. And so even John is like, yeah, maybe John thinks he could come back tomorrow or two thousand years from now. But that's not the point he's trying to make. He's not trying to give you a, a symbol to decode to figure out what year or what time he's coming back. He's trying to show you that this is what it looks like. And wherever you are and whatever frame time frame you're in or whatever, like this is the distinction and the disparity. While at the same time, again, saying I think that there is some pretty future events happening toward the end that I think I think the language of, of the I think the language sets it up that way to say at some point mm -hmm. we're now seeing the great fall of Babylon. We're seeing Satan's sort of final binding and that kind of stuff. And I would lean a little more, uh, much more futuristic on some of that kind of stuff. So that might make me inconsistent, but that's where I'm at. So. Cool. Well, thanks for letting us know. Yeah. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if any of that's helpful. I, I, I really, I mean, it's, it is hard because I, I spent so much time doing Trinitarian reading that I definitely overlooked at times, probably some really crucial, like basic things that I should probably know better <laughs> about Revelation. No, I mean, I think that it's impossible to know everything about a text, even if you're only dealing with one. I mean, Revelation is 22 chapters. I mean, I'm speaking from experience with Hebrews, which is 13. Um, but I mean, there are sections of Hebrews that I didn't deal with at all in my PhD and obviously read 
you know, I could give you a general overview of the argument and stuff, but some of the interpretive questions were beyond me. I mean, I, I've written like a, a short full commentary on Hebrews now, um, yeah. and I'm teaching through Hebrews and that helps, but I, I mean, they're just still, it's a complex text. So yeah, it's a lot going on there. There's no doubt about that. So, all right. Uh, time for another slow round. Okay. Um, what is, uh, if you could have done, or maybe you will later in your career, if you could do another book of the Bible, another topic, another thing that you would want to give all of your research to besides Hebrews or even Doctrine of the Trinity, because you've done that a lot too, what would it be? Mm, uh, John would be, like John's gospel would be an easy choice for me. But I also, I really love um, Luke Acts. And I, mm -hmm. I think that I could camp out there. I mean, this this may still be a reality, but yeah, yeah. that's probably... Yeah. Well, uh, if you could tell us who, um, see, you set me up and you know, you did, this just came to me because, uh, now what you need to do is to show us how, uh, David Allen is right. That Luke is the author of Hebrews and you could do Luke acts Hebrews and you could be a Lucan scholar and you didn't even, you already set yourself up for it. And then you could just become the world's greatest Lucan scholar. What do you think about that? I think what I'll do first is I'll show that um, for all the arguments that we've made for Luke and authorship, I could make an equally good case for John being mm. the author of Hebrews, because all of his arguments are very um, circumstantial. Yeah. And so in the Greek, I mean, the Greek in uh, Revelation, I could show you a, a number of parallels and especially with the images that are used in parallels and stuff. I think that the theology of John and the theology of Hebrews are more in line with the theology of Luke and Hebrews. But I don't know if you agree. Uh, no, I just like uh, I liked how I saw your Rasm. face change. You knew it was coming and then you just got fired up and you started going, which is my, my favorite. Madison is whenever you start getting you're putting your dukes up a little bit. That's my favorite Madison. So, OK. Um, <laughs> No, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, Revelation says John wrote it, so that makes it a little bit easier. You, 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 chose, the, you chose the book that has, like, the least, uh, <laughs> the least clarity on it, so um, oh, yeah. the sky's the limit. I mean, you could, you could do anything with it. I did tell you that I would come do a PhD with you at, at uh, TED's if I could work on the authorship of Hebrews, but you didn't seem interested. Oh, I didn't know that you would do the PhD. I thought it was just, you know, somebody. So if you want to be my student and work on the authorship question, then yeah, Brandon, I would love that. That, that would be a delight. <laughs> but since you decide, <laughs> since you like have refused to talk about it, I feel like you wouldn't be a very helpful supervisor. It's kind of. I would. I would. I would love for somebody to actually do a, like a just a fantastic study on the background of Hebrews. But I mean. Okay, if you were to have a PhD student who emails you and says. Hello, Dr. Pierce. I am a big fan of your work. Heard you on Church Grammar a bunch of times. You're just, you're just fantastic. Uh, I want to really, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out who wrote Hebrews. One, would you accept that person as a PhD student or would you try to divert them to another topic? And two, if you were to accept that, what would you, what would you give them to try to get them down the road of potentially finding the answer to that question? Yeah, I would say how um, and see, I mean, because this is like, it's a cool topic and it's like something that people are interested in, which is why it's like in my Twitter bio, because basically people are like, you work in Hebrews? Who wrote it? And, and that's I, why I keep trolling you. So yeah, exactly. So, um, so if they really do have an exciting way of unlocking that, then I, I mean, uh, whoever that person is, like, 
I, I will be a skeptic, but I will help you to uh, to write that project. And the fact that I'm a skeptic probably helps because yeah. I, I will push you every step of the way. But I mean, how do you do that? I, I mean, basically, you're limiting yourself to a pool uh, to the the pool of known authors that we have, right? Potentially, or you're doing something like akin to mirror reading. And uh, and Brian Dyer has has talked a bit about um, like the implications of, of mirror reading for uh, understanding Hebrews more. And he does a lot on like the first century background and stuff, which is great. Yeah. Um, but um, for the author, I mean, I don't know. So if you want to make a case for this or that, then great. But and I feel like until we find more texts or have a, a particular direction to go, it's pretty difficult. So. Okay. I've got two more slow round questions. All right. Uh, one uh, we have in common that we're both Longhorns fans because we're both yeah. from Texas. So we, so we have an equal uh, disdain for this season. And uh, I haven't watched the game in like three weeks. And, uh, but because I'm a Cowboys fan, you're a Saints fan. So there's, like, there's not a real rivalry there. Uh, it's like one of those random rivalries that comes up, but like there's no history. And the Cowboys are obviously a, a more accomplished franchise. Uh, so it's, it's hard to compare, you know. Um, but uh, see, I got that dig in there. But yeah. one of the crossovers that we've had recently is that the Cowboys uh, are on their fourth string quarterback. Are you aware of who the Cowboys fourth string quarterback is? My husband will be so upset at me that I don't know this. Yeah, Curtis, Curtis would know this. Yeah. Uh, oh, it is... Curtis knows every human being that has ever walked in the locker room <laughs> of the Cowboys. Well, he, so, he, yeah. will know, he will know not only. It's, oh, it's Garrett Gilbert, isn't it? Yes, it's Garrett Gilbert. Yeah. Do you, do you well, I know Garrett that because he's a Longhorn. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So I get to live the double pain of remembering that Garrett Gilbert basically threw four interceptions in the national championship game against Alabama and ruined it. And it's yeah. now the fourth string. I didn't even know. I genuinely did not know he was still in the league. And somehow that man has, has kept a paycheck. He transfers to SMU because I think he just got mentally destroyed by that Longhorn game, which I felt bad for him. Like he was a freshman starting a national championship game. It was a bad, it was a bad start. But yeah. now it's for the Cowboys. So now I get to live the fact that the Longhorns are, not as, are always underachieving now. And that Garrett Gilbert, who once broke my heart, is now the Cowboys quarterback. So I'm, I'm living in deep sports, uh, both uh, PTSD from the past and now having to relive it again. It's painful. Yeah, it's pretty rough for me as well. I mean, so I, I, my family is um, they Im immigrated to Texas from Louisiana. So that's, right. that's why I'm a Saints fan. And so I'm also an LSU fan. So like my, my dad's whole side of the family roots for LSU. And then my mom's whole side of the family for Texas. And I do root for both. Um, but I mean, LSU, I mean, we yeah. were pretty unstoppable last year. Mm -hmm. um, so I I mean, Alabama, public enemy number one, for yeah. sure. Nick, all, Nick Saban Alabama. in particular. Yeah. But um, this year, I mean, across the board, the Cowboys, um, Dak Prescott was my fantasy quarterback and I was mm. crushing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously. Um, and I've lost every game since then, except for one. I like I just just uh, overcame a, a pretty serious losing streak, and um, but um, so LSU after last year, Joe Burrow. Like mm -hmm. I mean, I love Joe, but yeah. he's gone and it's catastrophic. The Longhorns, the Saints. Mm -hmm. The Cowboys. I mean, I can't watch football. It's too twenty twenty is too stressful. Like I don't, I don't want to watch like more more pain and heartbreak. And but I love football, so it's it's been a little bit rough. Well, I'm a Mavericks fan, so I get I'm like I get to I'm now I'm ramping up on the Luka Doncic. Like the Mavericks are going to be fun 
for a long time after uh, losing Dirk. So I've got yeah. a little bit of I got a little bit of something to look forward to in December when that comes back. But I'm out on football. This is just not happening. I don't watch basketball a lot, but I do root for the Mavs. I like them, and I, yeah. I definitely love Dirk. So well, now's yeah. the time to get back on the bandwagon because it's happening. All right, okay. I'll keep so. that in mind. All right, second slow round question. Uh, you talked about teaching uh, Yonin literature class, and you just talked about how you can make an argument for John writing Hebrews or whatever. Uh, but what is your take on the authorship of the five books attributed to John? Yeah. Um, so my take that I teach in class is that the Apostle John um, is the beloved disciple, or at least is you know is the implied. Um, or is implied to be the beloved disciple. I think that's probably the case, but I think that he's anonymous to allow for some of the more like ideal or archetypal kind of readings. So I try to find a balance between that. Like he's he's anonymous so that he can offer this kind of archetypal understanding of the the beloved disciple while still being the beloved disciple. Um, but I think that there's a possibility for uh, redaction post John or some kind of composition post John or, you know, involvement of a Johannine community or something like that. I mean, I think that I, so I wouldn't take um, like in John, um, John one, John 21, sorry, I'm thinking of revelation. So I'm 22, um, John 21, um, you know, those references, the we references, the references to um, the ongoing kind of rumors about John, you know, not dying and Peter's mm -hmm. death and all of that. Well, Peter's death isn't a problem, but um, I would take those to be uh, possible, possible kind of uh, emendations or, or kind of um, signs of somebody other than the apostle John being involved in it. Yeah. Um, and then I would take that, I would, you know, and so I hold to that traditional view with the rest of the text as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's an interesting answer, but. That's not, I was hoping you'd make something up that was really controversial, but it's, I think it actually is controversial now to say that the apostle John is the author of the five. Like it's become such a big uh, oh, yeah. point of contention. And even uh, John Baer recently did, and I had him on the podcast, and we talked about it. Um, you know, he's making the argument that it's not John the Apostle, but it's somebody, you know, it's John the Elder. Right. And his argument, actually, part of it comes from Irenaeus and Eusebius. And he basically says right. that we've all read them wrong because most people assume that they're the ones who say that's John the Apostle. And he says, no, actually, they seem to distinguish, which I think is, I mean, you know, I've read those texts. I think there's some legitimacy there. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. Generally, I think that the, there's clearly some theological thematic overlap. So if you want to say that it's a community or whatever, I guess that's fine. But if you even think about the canonization process and some of that kind of stuff, I mean, we get into hairy territory pretty quickly, but he talks in the letters, for example, about, you know, they, we, we are the ones who saw him, uh, you know, they rejected our authority, which is very apostolic language. I mean, early in the church, like this is part of canonization was built around apostolic authority. Uh, part of the um, early arguments against the Gnostics and others was apostolic authority. And so he seems to actually be appealing to some sort mm -hmm. of authority now you could again you could you could make the case it's just he's a pastor or he's a leader or whatever and that's his authority but again that we language that comes in there seems to be implying that there's uh, something else going on there um and then yeah i just think the thematic overlaps i mean literally i think the author of first john if it's not the same person is clearly pretending to be the same person oh yeah clearly i think the implied author across the board has to be the same person yeah um if you know if you want to go beyond the implied author and to say the historical author is somebody else whatever but i think yeah. that that 
John is the implied author is the only plausible reading, mm. literary reading. I'm not saying that's my view, but I think that I think you really have to go that with the thematic overlap and the yeah. way that the author presents himself and everything. So, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I would take the John, the apostle, John, the elder, John, the theologian, John, mm -hmm. the revelator. Um, I mean, John's just like really crushing it in terms of like some really amazing nicknames. I mean, yeah. if I had any of those, I'd be like, yeah, I'd be living. Yeah. Well, on this podcast, you're Madison, the younger we've established that. So you've got that going for you right now. Perfect. So, Good. Um, all right. I'm, I'm throwing it back to you. What's your, what else you want to talk about? We're, we're, uh, we're an hour in. Oh my goodness. So okay. I don't think well, I've gone, I don't, I've gone barely over an hour, maybe a couple of times. So we at least need to, we need to beat the length record. So we at least need another 15 minutes. We? Okay. Well, let's see. What can we do in 15 minutes? It could be more. I'm fine. But I don't know. I mean, is there anything else that we could possibly talk about? I don't think there's anything. Do you, uh, do you why don't you tell us about Hebrews, Brandon? <laughs> uh, see, you're more of an expert on my side than I'm an expert on your side. I'll <laughs> no. tell you that for sure. Uh, I mean, I think very clearly Paul wrote Hebrews, um, you know, the no. language is the same, the terminology is the same. I mean, you just get a Paul thesaurus, it's the same book. Um, you know, I mean, at best Luke wrote it because he was an associate of Paul and that's why it sounds Pauline. <laughs> okay, I'm shutting, I'm shutting this down. <laughs> Let, let's do a different question, my goodness. As, as you were just like continuing to sh shake your head at me, I was like, I'll just keep going until she, until she gets frustrated. I'll have, I will have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> So actually, I would be interested. So, I mean, you finished your PhD. So I think you're officially or you're waiting on your diploma. I think there, mm -hmm. I think you got trolled a little bit on Twitter for saying that you were a doctor before you were a doctor. Do you remember doing that? Or you pretended yeah. like you were a doctor before no, you were so officially he, a doctor? <laughs> so here's the thing. <laughs> I, I feel like I do need to clear this up publicly because I was, uh, I was uh, trolled endlessly for this. So let me give you a little backstory, Madison. So I turned, so the way the Australian model works is you turn in your dissertation, you finish it, whatever. You turn it in, they send it to three external examiners who have 60 days to return it. So there's no Viva, nothing like that. They just give you back written marks. You wow. get those back and the scale is pass with no edits, pass with minor edits, pass with major, uh, pass with major edits, rewrite, fail. Yeah. So that's the scale. And then they'll say things like, is this in the top 25% of dissertations you've ever supervised? Like all this random stuff. And so you get that back and then you expect you're probably gonna have to do corrections and, and so you got to figure out like, you know, you have a pass, I had a pass with no corrections and then a pass with minor. So, okay, then we're going to have to do minor because there's something there. But then like the person who does the minor says, well, if we had had a Viva, we probably could have worked this out and I would have just said pass. But since we didn't, here's what you need to do. It's like that kind of stuff. And then I had uh, one of my supervisors that, that got all over me about grammar stuff, which I didn't expect, um, which is fine. And so it was kind of working through all that kind of stuff. So I def successfully defended based on the examinations that came back. So, you know, Australian time is like 15 hours ahead, before I think 14 where I'm at now. And I wake up to an email, a, 7 a, a text message at 7 a.m. from the Reverend Dr. Michael F. Bird. And it says, hold on, I'm gonna find it while I'm talking about this. That's so boring, just tell us what it said. Well, I wanna, I wanna say exactly <laughs> what it said because, because okay. he, he's the one that trolled me in front of everybody with the deep love that he has for me. And that's why I know he loves me because he trolled me. But he, uh, I get a text message from him that morning. I'm not gonna be able to find it in time. It basically, it says, not even basically, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but barely. It says, um, congratulations, Dr. Smith, you oh. did it. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, yada, yada, whatever. You've, you've crossed the finish line. Very, very nice text message. Yeah. So I 
taking my supervisor's words to heart, said, okay, I'm Dr. Smith. He called me. He literally said, congratulations, Dr. Smith. Yeah. And people I know, and people I know that have defended Vivas have, they're always called that, right? Congratulations, Dr. Such and Such. You, you def- successfully defended. You see the pictures on Facebook and they haven't gotten their diploma yet. But at the end of their Viva, it's them and their supervisors and it says, congratulations, Dr. Madison Pierce, right? So that we was- We did not do that because I was not a doctor at the end of my Viva. Okay. Well, I'm just saying that this, ha- that this is how, this is one of the versions of it that happens. I really want to find that text <laughs> message. And- um, Yes, I get it. A lot of people are wrong, Brandon. It's fine. No, I'm fine being wrong. I just want to say that I was told by my super, my supervisor called me doctor, and I thought that that was uh, appropriate. And so then, yeah, he gets on Twitter and he says, well, pending corrections, but congratulations, which was just a troll. He didn't have to do that. There was no, he wasn't trying to correct the public record. He was just giving me a hard time. And uh, so then I said to him, this is all public record because of Twitter. I said, you called me doctor, and now I'm going to run with it forever. So I, it is his fault. It's not my fault. Now, there has been a time already today in which I have blame shifted something and it turned out that it was your fault, the audio issues we had. So my, I'm getting, I'm going to be right on this blame shift as well. So, okay. So now here's how this works. This is really frustrating. Um, see, now you got me going. I defend with my examiners and then Michael Bird calls me doctor and then tells me I can't say doctor. Then what you do is you work on the corrections. You send the corrections back to the accreditation board and the dean of the accreditation board then tells you if your corrections are sufficient such that you can now have your degree conferred to you, right? Yeah. So I do that. I get that back. Congratulations. You have, you have completed. You have defended. You've successfully done your corrections. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, here's your instructions for having it bound and sent to us. Fantastic. Well, in Australia, it's summer. She's like, sorry, uh, we're not going to be able to confer it. You're not going to be able to actually confer it until April or May because it's summer here. Like, Madison, I successfully defended this thing in August of 2020, and I will get the paper in hand in, like, May of 21. So I'm just not going to apologize for the fact that I have literally done everything except for receive the paper. Uh, So Bird told me that Bird gives me a hard time for saying doctor publicly, and that's fine. I'm not going to do it, okay? You don't have to call me doctor. My students do, but you don't have to. I mean, um, but you, you have to call me Dr. Pierce. I do. You're like legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah now and that so, I'm remembering that there's like a, you know, there's a power dynamic that we are not acknowledging. <laughs> it's true. That's a fair point. <laughs> that's a fair point. You are, you are no longer, uh, you are no longer Madison the Younger. You're, mm-hmm. you're that's disrespectful. Madison the, yeah. the doctor. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, so that's my, that's my, uh, that's my public defense of how that went down and why it happened. And I got a lot of congratulations and I got a couple of trolls and that's fine. And then I had at least two people that I don't know who I guess follow me on Twitter who said things that I felt like were like, um, just kind of like, why? Like, why did you say that to me? I'm trying to have a good day. And that was like a really yeah. weird, it was like that somebody said like Dr. Andis, congratulations, Dr. Andis. And I was like, I know what Dr. Andis means. And I'm aware that I am technically Dr. Andis, but you didn't have to say that. Like, why'd you, why'd you have to do that? Like, why you gotta be so messed up toward me? You know? So yeah. there you go. I've let it all out. Twitter. Thank you, Madison, for letting me do that. This is why I'm, I quit Twitter for I three had... years. I had no idea the can of worms that I was opening a little bit, but that was more than I could ask or imagine. So, well, I, I finished, you. I sent in, Madison, I sent in the final draft on May 8th of 2020. And I know it was May 8th because I sent it in eight hours after my youngest daughter was born from the hotel room. I mean, from the Incredible. hospital room. Yeah, yeah. And it was done then, Madison. It was done in, on May 8th. And I made some corrections in August and I have now had it 
approved by examiners and my supervisor and the accrediting board. And I don't get to have the paper or the quote unquote conferral until April or May of 21. So I, it will be a year after I completed it that I'll actually be able to hold the paper in hand, even though I've literally done everything possible for it to be official. So I, yeah, I am Dr. Brandon Smith. Thank you very much. Brandon okay. D. Smith, actually. We put the middle wow. initial on wow. that. Yeah. So in Britain, it's when you graduate. And so it depends on, so I, I snuck in the timeline where I was able to graduate, um, I guess like two months after my Viva. Let me clarify. And, sorry. Let me clarify. It's also that way in Australia. I'm just being super petty. So it, it is after you actually graduate technically. So I'm just being petty. So go on. Oh, good. Well, thank you for clearing that up. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's when you graduate. So I have had friends that like have just missed that mark and have had to wait like six months or whatever to like technically be whatever. Cause it's, yeah. it, it's, it comes from Oxford, I believe where they would actually Snops. have people like, I think Francis told me this whenever I was finishing up. It's something like um, they used to have people like actually vote on the degrees or, you know, do some kind oh, of yeah. like, or maybe they still do. At, they probably still do. Um, but anyways, there's some kind of formal something, something that happens at graduation. And so I think, I mean, certainly a case of Durham, but I'm sure uh, with Ridley as well, that it's kind of coming from that British standard. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's a, there's another step in there where you, once the examiners do the corrections, you have to create a corrections list. And then you send that to the doctoral board who approves the corrections list, who has never read your dissertation, by the way, neither here nor there, uh, who approves so the corrections like, list. So it's like, page three, add a comma. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes, this sounds splendid. This is, this is fantastic. Fantastic, mate. Because um, it's Australia, you know. That's all I got. Like, my Australian turns into British really quickly, but... Um, yeah, it's, so it's like, yeah, it's like 16 steps, which is on the one hand, it's awesome because like I told, uh, you know, I told my wife, like when we were going through it, she was like, wouldn't you have just like, do you sometimes just wish you had done like an American one where it was just like, sh you know, do the seminars, write the dissertation, do the vibe and be done. And I was like, on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, I feel like it made it much better because I had to, I had to write to a, an examiner. I didn't know who that was going to be. And I had to write in such a way that I wasn't there to defend myself. So it had to be, I mean, I really felt like I had to really put in the time. And then to be able to have three, I mean, I had three world-class examiners uh, who sent back, um, you know, to have three of them give me feedback that I can work on before it's published and before it's done uh, on top of having a supervisor. And then on top of having, I mean, I've had, you know, six layers of approval basically. So on the one hand, I think it's much better because of that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, you can't tweet doctor, even if your supervisor says it or else people make fun of you. So that's the, that's the negative downside. So, so here we are. Yeah. Yeah. You've lived a really hard life. I have, you know, it's, uh, my childhood growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in, in rough neighborhoods on welfare, moved out when I was 16, parents got divorced. I mean, that, that's all true, actually. I'm not yeah. trolling, but by far the, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life is, is, uh, not being able to call myself doctor when I feel like I should. So, you know, it's been, I've been through a lot, but this is, this is a, a this is persecution with a trademark on it, TM. That's what this is. So um, this was fun. Yeah. Yep. This was fun. I'm glad glad we did it. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast, disinviting me, and then coming on my podcast anyway. And thank you for obliging and letting me uh, just troll you for like basically, <laughs> what, 98 minutes? So that's a, Yeah, that's amazing. We did it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Madison. It's good to talk to you. You too. Thanks, Brandon.